When I came in, crypto, I would say that the Fed reflected like the, the general population's understanding and curiosity about crypto. Some people knew about it, some people didn't, some people were receptive to it, some people weren't. But as crypto started surging in price and more people, the general public started getting interested in it, banks started getting interested in it. And the question of what was legally permissible for them to do and what was acceptable from the perspective of folks whose responsibility was to maintain the safety and soundness of the financial system. You're listening to Because of Bitcoin, a podcast that shares the personal stories of how Bitcoin is having a real impact in people's lives, including mine. I'm your host, Mauricio Di Bartolomeo, the co-founder and CSO of Ledin. And without further ado, let's get started with today's story. Bitcoin is permissionless, decentralized, and transparent. Fiat currency is centrally planned, permissioned, and decisions are made behind closed doors. How could the two ever coexist? Could they ever even fulfill the same functions? It's a question that sparks debate among many within the Bitcoin community and beyond. Very few people have experienced a currency collapse in the flesh. To those who have, Bitcoin needs no explanation. But there are others who have had the privilege of living their entire lives under a stable currency, and they haven't needed Bitcoin yet. One group believes that in order for Bitcoin to reach its potential, it should never be regulated, controlled, or monitored by any government. This group believes that ultimately, Bitcoin will drive out all other forms of fiat money and that they cannot coexist. Another group believes that in order for Bitcoin to reach the level of global adoption it needs, it must be integrated into the existing financial system. And that will only happen if the Bitcoin community works together with regulators and the government. Ana de Souza has seen both sides of the coin. She lived through inflation in Brazil, found Bitcoin, and then went to work at the Federal Reserve, the world's biggest central bank. As a Brazilian and a graduate of one of the most prestigious schools in the world, her perspective is unparalleled. I wanted to know how she made her way from Brazil to being chosen as the cryptocurrency expert at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. I can't stress enough how mind-blowing that is to me. Anna, so great to see you again. It's been a long time coming. Definitely. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? A little bit about my childhood. Okay. Um, so I was born in Brazil. And I came to the U.S. for the first time when I was uh, seven years old. And between seven and 14, you, we would live alternatively in the U.S. and in Brazil. We settled permanently here around uh, the, when I was 14. And I say here because uh, I'm not used to um, the fact that I moved to Canada four months ago. So I remember quite a bit of moving. Um, overall, very happy childhood, but painted with this... Uh, the, the specter of, I think, what we're going to talk about quite a bit, which was hyperinflation and how that precipitated my family's uh, first move out of the Edward country and how it colored, you know, some of the major decisions that I, I made with my education and my career later on. Maybe talk a little bit about your education. Like, what was, what was you, what did you think you want to be after going through hyperinflation when you were 14 and then going into, say, university? I went to Harvard for undergrad and went back to Harvard for my MBA a few years later. When I came to the U.S. in 2014, I came with my younger sister and we were living with my mom, who at that point in time had become a single mom. And it was, uh, you know, a tough thing to live with a single mom. She was working as a house cleaner 
this point we're in New Jersey. I had a very keen, you know, kind of sense that my mission here, even as a 14-year-old, for me and my sister was to get into the best possible university I could, to get the best possible education I could, so that we could vault ourselves out of the situation that we were in financially. And so I really applied myself like a little nerd <laughs> to, to that mission and ended up becoming the first student in my high school to go to Harvard. And the next year, my sister became the second student in the high school to go to Harvard. When I got there, I thought I wanted to study history until I realized it requires about 500 pages of reading a week, uh, which I, you know, as much of a nerd as I was, I didn't think I could really cope very effectively. You know, I, I reflected on it and thought, you know, what I really like to read about uh, is it, not history in the general sense. I enjoy that too, but really like economic history, you know, and the history of commerce, history of enterprises. So I decided to direct my attention to economics and also reflecting on the fact that it had, it had played such a role in my life from childhood that I just wanted to understand a little bit better, first of all, what happened in Brazil during that time and what could potentially happen, right? When, when monetary and fiscal policy goes out of whack um, and it needs to be brought back into order, right? For, for economies to, to progress. So that's what I ended up studying in after university, uh, went into consulting, liked business quite a bit, enough to, to go get my MBA. And that, you know, was my, uh, my educational trajectory. Like many of the guests we've had on the show, Anna is an example of how our experience with money when we're younger leads to financial curiosity later in life. And as we'll see, it often influences our career choices as well. Once you went back for your MBA, what did you do after your MBA? So I went to LinkedIn right after my MBA. So I went there for an MBA internship. I was working with a lot of data scientists, data miners, and get kind of fascinated by, by the work they were doing. They offered me a full-time role and I said, great, I'll be back in San Francisco, you know, working in tech. And from then on, I, I can explore what other opportunities there might be in tech. At what point did you first learn about Bitcoin? By late 2011, I knew about it because I was reading some articles about the improbable surge in price. And I think there was also a collapse in 2011 as well. So I, I had read about the surge in price and read about Bitcoin. And unlike a lot of folks, I, I didn't get into the technical details right away. I didn't go to the white paper right away, which I think is, is pretty common. I just recall being very fascinated by the community of people who were championing it because they all seemed very passionate about, about a lot of things that Bitcoin could potentially do, but primarily about the possibility of launching an alternative monetary system. And I thought it was like, wow, it, how often do you see this passion about, you know, dislodging central banks? <laughs> central banks usually do not, you know, sort of uh, get this much attention. I took like a very wayward route to learning about Bitcoin because I kept consuming a lot of information and readings that weren't necessarily important to understand Bitcoin itself, but seemed important to understand this community. I don't think I bought my first Bitcoin until 2015. I think I took, you know, my, my end of year bonus from LinkedIn and, and finally made my first purchase. So it took a while. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that journey, about learning about Bitcoin and crypto? And at, at what point do you decide that you want to make this a part of your career? You know, I had the, the fascination, not in the back of my mind, because I, I was taking steps to explore it. You know, when I was in San Francisco after my MBA, there was a, a burgeoning crypto community there and there were meetups that you could attend and, and people that you could talk to. I remember attending like an Ethereum meetup well before I understood what Ethereum was and, and what it was trying to do. Going back to that career trajectory, you know, I went from LinkedIn to a tiny startup. The tiny startup folded within nine months. So now I was, you know, two years out of business school about to go into my third job. And I started doing some independent consulting. And this was around the time that, you know, kind of ICOs were surging. And because I had had this interest and had built up this base of knowledge around Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And, you know, I had this uh, credential background that that people put a lot of stock in. I kept getting a lot of consulting offers, both from established businesses that wanted to understand blockchain and how they might be able to integrate into their operations and, you know, kind of teams and, and small projects that wanted to basically create an ICO. An ICO is short for an initial coin offering. These were, in some ways, similar to an IPO or initial public offering, in that an ICO was used by a company to raise money by selling its own tokens. Investors could buy a cryptocurrency token or coin to support a particular project, and some of these coins could be used to get discounts when you were using the financial services or products that were served by the protocols themselves. And it made a lot of people very rich, right? And it ran afoul of a lot of securities laws. <laughs> and the whole thing was really problematic because these these ICO schemes were, were backing a lot of like, the nicest way to put it is like commercially unviable <laughs> opportunities, right? So it collapsed pretty quickly. And that's usually what I would tell people who would like approach me, you know, to pay me to, you know, give them ICO advice. I'm like, listen, guys, this is not a sustainable long-term you know, form of capital raising um, is very risky. And I think that you should focus on, you know, the business model and the technology first. And I usually would not get those gigs because no one wanted to hear that. So I didn't advise a lot of ICOs, but I got approached by a few. But that's at the time when two friends from business school came to me and said, we heard that you're, you know, consulting for in crypto and we're going to launch uh, a business in crypto and we'd like for you to consult for us. And that was Falcon X. So that's how I started. Did three months of consulting, converted full-time, mostly because one, I was having a great time. And two, by that point, I felt like, okay, it's time to convert this interest into a professional opportunity. Before I get into when we connect, because I think it's right around this time, what was the mission at Falcon X? So when it started, we thought we were going to build a retail crypto exchange and we were actually far along in development um, of that exchange and we had internal beta testing, which I remember was really fascinating because, you know, we had some finance people and we had some engineers and we would do like little competitions on the, the exchange that had been built, but not yet launched. And that's when the engineers learned about like limit trades and market orders and all this good stuff because they kept losing so much money to the finance people. But it, it was really the wrong time in the market because retail had receded dramatically, right, in 2018. Like there were not a lot of retail traders anymore. 
Um, so we had this great team. We had some funding. We had a product that could be repurposed, right? Some technology that could be repurposed. And we thought, okay, maybe let's look toward institutional brokerage um, because there is still a market there. There had been a, a number of small hedge funds that had formed, you know, in, in 2016, 2017. And certainly not a lot of them were going to make it and they didn't make it, but there were some still, you know, uh, trading the markets. And we thought, let's build some, some tooling capabilities for these nascent institutions that are still trading the crypto markets. And, and off we went. I mean, 2019 is really when we, you know, early on, even kind of pre-product because we had to <clears throat> re redo the product that we had. We started onboarding some customers. We started trialing, you know, kind of just like over the counter um, orders to, to gauge interest, to get more information about the market. And that was the start of Falcon X, which has since become, you know, a large, global, successful institutional prime brokerage. After spending a year and a half helping to build Falcon X, Anna came to a fork in the road. And the direction she took led to what I think is one of the most interesting jobs in the world. So in early 2020, I, I kind of had two options in front of me, right? So I could continue leaning very hard into Falcon X and, and making the most of the opportunities there, which required a lot of time. I mean, you guys were working really hard. I'm sure that you still do. And we were full throttle, like 80 hour weeks. Or I could be, you know, sort of the, the kind of parent that I envisioned myself being um, from, frankly, a young age. And I didn't see those two goals as compatible. But at the same time, and this was coincidental, this opportunity at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco opened up. And for, for those of you who are not familiar with the Federal Reserve, or even for those of you who are, might not know this detail, there's the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, which is the, you know, kind of like policy-making authority, right? They, they set the monetary policy and those folks sit in D.C. And, and then, then there are the reserve banks, and those are distributed regionally across the U.S. And, you know, each reserve bank conducts its own economic analysis, and it has, um, you know, kind of parallel functions, but also they serve a specific function within the Federal Reserve System. And they're all responsible for supervising a set of member banks, banks, you know, commercial banks that are part of the Federal Reserve System within their district. So this opportunity was within the supervision group, the group that supervises banks. And the San Francisco Fed had in, you know, 2015, 2016, recognized that the banks that they were supervising were some of the more pioneering banks in the U.S. Right. They were the ones that were really partnering with fintech firms, mimicking fintech products and going into crypto. For example, Silvergate is one of the banks that the Fed supervises right out of California. And so the San Francisco supervision group said, we need to better understand, uh, you know, what's unfolding, how these technologies are changing banks and how banks are interacting with them so we can be better supervisors of the potential risks associated with adoption of these technologies. So they formed a team that, whose mandate was exactly that, to learn and educate the rest of the supervision group as to you know, what the emerging risks associated with the adoption of FinTech were. And they needed a crypto expert. And I was like, well, this has come at the right time in my life, right? Because I'm, I'm stepping down from Falcon X. I've learned a lot about crypto through this experience and through you know independent study and in some other experiences. 
And I had always had it in the back of my mind that I was going to spend a little bit of my career in public service, primarily out of gratitude for the, the opportunities that I got in the US, which I, I know sounds corny, but truly like it's like a, it's not even a, you know, kind of like a once in a lifetime thing. It, it, it's very, it has never happened before in history where you take, you know, a working class woman and you like manage to construct uh, a society in which she can, you know, go to Harvard and like vault, you know, her and her family to like upper middle class in, in the space of a generation. It, it took a lot of well-functioning institutions and a lot of well-equipped and well-meaning mentors and teachers and so forth to make that happen. And I, I really wanted in my heart to, to be able to give back to the U.S. for the opportunities that I got. And I thought, you know, public service was going to be later in my career, but this opportunity opened up. And it was going to be a very good use of my my skills and talents. So I applied to join the team, um, and you know they were really happy with the experience that I, I was going to bring in, and so I went. So you went to the belly of the beast, a central bank, to talk about Bitcoin and crypto, which still blows my mind. Could you share anything that you can about the general viewer understanding at a Federal Reserve level on Bitcoin and or stablecoins? When I came in, you know, crypto, I would say that the Fed reflected like the, the general population's understanding and curiosity about crypto. Some people knew about it, some people didn't, some people, you know, were receptive to it, some people weren't. But as crypto started surging in price, and more people, the general public started getting interested in it. Banks started getting interested in it. And the question of what was legally permissible for them to do and what was acceptable from the perspective of, you know, folks whose responsibility was to maintain the safety and soundness of the financial system and the banking system in particular. But that's also when you started seeing some, you know, like splits in into different camps, like either this, like, you know, this is definitely something that we would don't want to integrate into, you know, the formal economy because it's too risky or, you know, this is something that is risky, but it's taking root in the economy, whether or not we want it. And it's going to seep into banks eventually. So we should um, preempt that and, and already start building some sort of supervisory framework for it and everything in between. So I, I, I can tell you what impressed me was the level of engagement and attention that the principles that, you know, that the people who are very high up, the board of governors, the presidents of central, uh, of the reserve banks were, were expressing, you know, their, their interest and their curiosity about it was really high and, and that left a mark. You saw the inner workings of the world's biggest central bank. How do you feel about Bitcoin's future after your experience at, uh, at a central bank? The way that I would say that I came out of the Fed, and, and perhaps this was also the way that I went into the Fed, is that I don't know what it would mean for Bitcoin to exist in tension with the objectives of governments in central banks. And and like you said before, right? I come from Brazil, you come from Venezuela. Like I get the impulse to have an alternative to fiat money that you can use to rein in a regime that's abusing its, its fiat and, and monetary authority, or its fiscal and monetary authority. I think that Bitcoin is indisputably a helpful tool for people who are trapped under a bad government. But I also think that the solution to bad government is not good technology. It's good government. 
you know, you you had an earlier episode of this podcast, which is fantastic. And I encourage anyone who's listening now who has not listened to it to to go back at the end of this episode. Don't go back right now. Listen to the rest. But at the end of this episode, where you and your brother Daniel recounted your experience in Venezuela, I, I found it very moving. I thought it was very hard to not be moved by it. There was something in there that stuck with me where you said, you know, for you guys, Bitcoin wasn't about getting rich. It, it was about not sinking, right, under hyperinflation. You know, that resonated because I get that sentiment. Here, you, you may disagree with me, but what I want to see for Venezuela and for Venezuelans is not using Bitcoin to survive in the ways that you guys had to, but using Bitcoin as, as collateral, right, to open businesses um, as a way to reduce the cost of, of serving international markets, maybe even as a way to, to price oil exports. I want it to be woven into the fabric of a, a thriving economy. And so for Bitcoin to to do that, it probably can't exist in tension with, with government objectives. So either Bitcoin has to stay in the margins and, and be a kind of asset of last resort, or it's integrated into existing financial systems, right? And subject to government supervision and possibly government control. And I think the next big challenge for Bitcoin users in the Bitcoin community is to reckon with that potential trade-off because there there's a lot that you would be giving up, right? If you if all of a sudden you said, okay, the government has like censorship rights over transactions and so forth, but there's potentially a lot to gain in terms of adoption and in terms of, you know, integrating to the economy. It's a fascinating moral question, I would say. And I think it's one that I, that I wrestle with as well. How do you feel the recent events around FTX uh, could impact the perception of Bitcoin and crypto at, at a central bank level? Uh, well, they happened just after I left, right? So I, I didn't really get a chance to see how it played out. But I think, first of all, I think that banking regulators are probably tapping themselves on the shoulder, you know, saying good job because the fallout really didn't impact the banking system, right? You didn't have people like all of a sudden pulling their their bank deposits in, in response to it, except for the banks that were heavily exposed to crypto, right? They, you know, it's been public information. They suffered major withdrawals and deposits because of the exposure. But that exposure wasn't contagious. What I hope they're doing is realizing that this is a setback that potentially will set back the industry for a few years, but it's not the end of crypto. It's not something that you can finally say like, oh, finally, I don't have to like learn about this or regulate it because now it's going to go away. People are not going to engage with it anymore. That's not the case at all, right? We still have to reckon with that the risks that crypto could potentially bring into the broader financial system. And we need to start figuring out a way to manage that integration well. What's next for you professionally? Right now, I'm just spending a lot of time with my my daughter, um, uh, managing my transition here to Canada, and chatting with a lot of folks in, in the crypto community here in in Canada and getting to to know more of it. So I'm I'm having a good time there. But yeah, maybe sometime next year, a couple of years from now, you can invite me back, and I'll I'll have a new tale to tell about the next chapter of my career. Absolutely, I, I very much look forward to that. And for those people that want to keep listening to you or want to learn more about you, where can our listeners find out more about your work or what's going to be up next for you? Twitter's probably the best bet. I'm at APTSUSA. That's A-P-T-S-O-U-S-A. 
Well, Anna, this was uh, a really fascinating conversation. I, I thank you wholeheartedly for, for making the time to come. And uh, I can't wait to see you in person very soon. Welcome to Canada. Uh, uh, we're going to make a point of getting together very soon. And uh, I look forward to having you back on in a little bit when you can tell us about your new tale. Sure. And thank you, Marisa. I can't wait to see you again as well. And thank you to your audience. When I was growing up in Venezuela, we always had this idea that only the worst of the worst of society would join the government. But in North America, there is much more of an attitude that you want the best of the brightest doing public policy. You want smart and qualified people making the laws and at the helm of the institutions that keep the country running. So when I learned that Anna was joining the Federal Reserve, it signaled to me that there are still institutions out there that are looking for the best and the brightest and moreover, they are able to draw this type of talent. For the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco to recognize Anna's expertise and hire her makes me feel a lot better about how these types of institutions are treating Bitcoin. When people in the Bitcoin community talk about government regulators, I think they miss how hard the job of a regulator is sometimes. This job is to allow innovation, but also to protect the people. And I think what happened recently with FTX is a good example of that. It's not an easy job they have. Bitcoin can fix the money by giving every world citizen an alternative to their local currency. However, we can't just opt out of every political system that we don't like. We'll run out of systems really soon. In this context, I believe Bitcoin is a tool for political change, but it is not going to fix politics for us. We have to take action to fix the societies that we want to live in. And this will take cooperation from all sides including regulators and Bitcoiners. And this marks the last episode of this season of Because of Bitcoin. We'll be back soon with new stories, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you once again to all of our incredible guests and all of you for listening and for joining me. We'd love to know your thoughts on season one and please let us know who you'd like us to have on for season two. Feel free to share your feedback with us on Twitter by tagging us at HODL with Lennon. Thank you everybody, muchas gracias, los quiero mucho and we'll see you all again very soon.